talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Willard Skin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dino Weeks and Dave Woodard. Premier Doug Ford will lower provincial gas taxes by 5.7 cents a liter on Canada Day. What do you think Justin Trudeau will do? Here's Scott Thompson! It's Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. It's 900 CHML. The movie Elvis, the new Elvis movie, has hit theaters. And it's a little different spin on the King's legacy from what we hear. Uh, to talk to somebody who has seen it. And it's, you know, this is kind of like watching the Titanic. You sort of know what happens. But let's bring in Eric Alper, publicist, music commentator. He is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, that's a, such a great line that you know what happened. And weirdly enough, in this one, he's alive. Um, no, no, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Um, no, in this one, anyway, he, yeah, exactly. There's some sort of a conspiracy, and you've explained it all here. That I've, now, there's a movie. Ama- it would be amazing to see this film with somebody that doesn't really know and say, I bet he's going to die on the toilet. <laughs> Yeah, you know, oh, and, and take their money. But look, it is such an amazing film. It's two hours, 45 minutes within the first five minutes. Your toes will be tapping. And remember why not only do you love Elvis, like most people do, but why you love music in the first place. Baz Luhrmann, the guy who directed and produced it and co-wrote it. Um, he has a lot of experience working in the music realm. Um, he's done a lot of films um, that kind of harkens back to two days gone by and, and, uh, and things like that. But he just knows exactly the story that he wants to tell. And the story is really, it's really about Elvis, but it's really about his kind of villain character in the movie, which was his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, who literally just worked him to death. So um, let's talk. So uh, my my first question was, what's new here? But here's the angle you're talking about. It's more of of the Colonel Tom Parker uh, woven through it, which who uh, I believe is played by Tom Hanks, of course. Um, So so what is the new what is the new message here? What is what are we finding? What are we seeing here that we haven't seen before? I, I think in a world where we love to play victim each of us in our own lives. Um, Elvis Presley comes off as more of a victim um, to Tom Parker's um, lust and greed and awful business management um, than ever before. It's almost like if you combined all of the hundreds of Elvis biographies that are out there, one thing is for certain in every single one of them that Colonel Tom Parker came from a very mysterious um early life um he had to change his name because there's rumors and and some small facts out there that he was running from the law he was an illegal immigrant in in america so he kind of fled the the police at a very uh in in his late teens early 20s um and just his business decisions of having elvis do those amazing now but very schlocky 60s films um Mm. not really having Elvis speak out against what was happening politically or socially around him, especially when it came to the civil rights movement, which Elvis was absolutely keen and aware of because he knew where his music of rock and roll came from. It came from black performers and black writers and black producers. So for somebody like Colonel Tom Parker to sanitize him, 
for teenage girls um, did a real discredit to, I think, who Elvis was as a person and as a performer. So you see a lot of that in a film of Elvis kind of wanting to become more outspoken in his music while, you know, Tom Parker just wanted him to sing, sing, sing and make these movies that was going to be making them both money at the box office. It was hard to believe that he never toured outside of the United States, like outside off the continent, that he never toured Europe. He never toured. He never went anywhere. Yeah, uh, and this largely due, like this is yeah. largely due to to the Colonel. But you know, considering yeah. how big he was, I just, it's amazing nowadays. Yeah, he did a couple of shows in Vancouver. He did a couple in Toronto. But yeah. but Parker never accompanied him because he was afraid that if he left the country, um, that he would have to come back, and that's when yeah. immigration would realize um, who he really was. So he stayed in America his entire life once he once he's got situated here. Um, but you know, really, I think those are all. Those are all kind of side ideas and stories. The real story is Austin Butler as Elvis Presley, um, you know, right. and, and I certainly don't know a lot about him when I first heard the name. I just heard that he was beating out, you know, all of these massive superstars um, like Harry Styles for the role of it. But, you know, my teenage daughter quickly corrected me and said, no, he was in Hannah Montana and the Carrie Diaries <laughs> and the Shanae Chronicles. And so he's a little bit of a, of a, of a teen idol himself sings like Elvis Presley. In fact, in the first bit of the film when Elvis is young Elvis, that's actually Austin Butler's voice. And then they use, Elvis Presley's real voice in the later years of his life but the recreation of of the things that we see of Elvis the 1969 comeback special the movies he's such a dead ringer more so than than I think Kurt Russell was hmm. playing Elvis in the 70s and 80s he was great was too mark. he yeah, was great yeah, and that's yeah, he was the mark that, that I remember but I think that you know Austin Butler will certainly shed a lot of those memories um, for the older folk as well so um, is this more about um, his career, his personal life, the the colonel, or, or is it just a, a different presentation of all? It's a little bit of a it's a little bit of everything. It, it definitely focuses on his extremely fast meteorotic rays to being the king. Um, but, you know, there's still a lot of. A downfall, but the downfall of it of the last couple of years of Elvis's life when he developed a real bad drug habit, when his life Priscilla left him and his child, um, when he kind of had his life spiraling out of control, that definitely not shied away from. But Baz, the director, has um, also revealed this week that there is a four hour cut of the film that he did, um, and that HBO might be airing this version of the longer version um, 80 days from now because um, they've already announced that it's going to be on that streaming service so we could have like a kind of let it be Beatles situation where wow. you know here's the two hour cut uh, and here's the six hour cut but the, the real fan know that there's potentially a 15 hour cut of that film that I'm sure that all the Beatles fans would want to watch anyway so it'll be interesting to see those what was left out we know for sure that what was left out was elvis meeting richard nixon in the white house uh and elvis's relationship with with his girlfriends after priscilla left him so we'll see but it definitely it, it definitely touches on all the issues of it um but like i said before it 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 certainly makes elvis into the hero um of his own doing along mm. with with parker but his descent was was squarely put on colonel tom parker's shoulders 
Eric Helper with us, music publicist and commentary, talking about the new Elvis movie that is in theaters. The King is back. Uh, Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. All right. Beautiful Scars is the documentary on the life of Hamilton's Tom Wilson based on his memoir of the same name. It opens at the Playhouse Cinema tonight. Tom will be there in attendance. And to talk more about all of this, uh, Mohawk author, visual artist, musician, Lee Harvey Osmond, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, Junk House, Tom Wilson is here. Tom, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing great, Scott. You know, one day I'm going to be able to come in with a guitar and hang out with you for like an hour we can talk and play songs and uh, roll a couple up and hang out, you know, and that would be... I cannot, I cannot wait for that. I cannot wait for that, and hopefully it will happen soon. So we talked about when, we talked when your book first came out. We talked about when the doc first came out and, and uh, premiered at the Hot Docs Canadian uh, Festival and such, uh, and what it was like for, you know, for you to expose your beautiful scars to, to the world and for people to, to see. I mean, that, that takes a lot for some one to do what's it like now that you've had time to digest all of this and hear the response from people and such what's different now what does it feel like now well um i think you know me well enough scott to know that i'm not standing still and uh uh i my respect for the work of shane belcourt the director of this documentary is is uh, you know as much respect as i can give anybody he told the story not just a me, 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 me. He told the story of my mother. He got my mother in front of a camera, an 83-year-old woman, to say things that I've never heard her say in her life and to tell her story. And to me, that is, uh, that is, the, that is the punch in the guts. That is the tear at the heart uh, of this documentary. A documentary that, you know, and I, I'm gonna, let me just start by saying, I don't like when art gets mixed up with sports and people say this is number one and this is number five and this is number 20. I don't go for charts or anything like that. Having said that, this film came in number three out of 260 films at the Hot Dogs Festival. So, okay, this is one time. <laughs> you talked about uh, listening to and she very much a part of this your mom very much a part of uh, this documentary and in your in your culture and what you've discovered you said that things that you heard her say that you'd never heard before what sort of stands out what what stands out to you hearing and learning from your mom well one thing that uh you know she she, she uh relived the story uh, in the movie um, about sitting out on my back deck at my house on her 80th birthday three years ago. She told the story to uh, us about when she was in day residential school. Now, this is, this is a, a woman, 83, who was a young girl who the RCMP came to her grandmother's door and tried to drag her out of the house and take her away. It was only because of my uh, Mohawk grandmother's uh, uh, ability to fight the RCMP off that my mother was not dragged away to some concentration camp they called residential schools. Having said that, also, um, my mother did go to day residential school. And when she was there, the teacher made the students stand up every day at the age of six and seven, little children, and take a look at each other. She used to say, take a look at each other. Take a look around the room and stare at each other because you're the last Indians that this world is ever going to see. Hmm. My mother told that story with me and my kids and my grandkids, her great-grandchildren, her grandchildren and me, her son. 
four generations of Mohawks. So at the very least, my mother represents that colonialism cannot beat us down and that uh, she's an example of the great survival and the resilience of the indigenous people. What was it like for her to sit back all of those years? Because you knew of each other, but you thought she was, she was a cousin. cousin. She, she was your my cousin. cousin my entire life. So what was it like for her? She talked about, has she talked to you about what it's been like for the last so many years to sit back and watch? And now, and now she's mom. Well, um, she's not only mom, but she's also grandma and yeah. great grandmother, yeah. you know. Um, it, well, she's, she's an older gal now, Scott, you know. And um, she's been not only resilient and a survivor, but she's been accepting of what people have told her. And uh, now she can actually uh, embrace her position in the family as a Mohawk woman, as a Mohawk grandmother. Um, I think that uh, I think it's you know what? It doesn't matter what time these gifts come to us in our life. Uh, We appreciate them and we embrace them. Uh, even more when uh, they've been robbed from us and we, we get them back, you know. I think that's pretty well. I can't speak for her. If she was on the line, Scott, she would certainly speak for herself. Would she want to come on? Probably not. <laughs> not, 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 not. <laughs> okay. No offense against you, Scott. You're fantastic. But, I understand. Uh, yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah, that would be too much for her, I think. So uh, what does she think of you? and what you have become. Well, I'm just out for lunch with her and my son, uh, and I just got back home. Um, She thinks that the work I'm doing, um, uh, the fact that uh, we started an Indigenous scholarship at McMaster University. Uh, Last month, we raised a quarter million dollars for Indigenous students in Ontario to be able to attend McMaster, and uh, and we're going to help them further their education and become uh, members uh, of, of this world uh, as, as doctors and lawyers and as engineers and as accountants. And uh, um, she's proud of, of the work that I'm doing because I'm, like I say, I'm not standing still. It's not like we made a documentary and, and we mm. slap our hands together and jump on the couch and watch Netflix. What we do is, uh, as, uh, as Mohawks, is, is we keep going. So we started this Indigenous scholarship, and, it, and, it, and we were very successful gathering the money to start it up at McMaster. Um, right now, uh, the book is being uh, turned into a play that uh, plans are to launch. Uh, the play will open probably in 2023. And hmm. we've just started talks with, uh, with good old Hollywood, California, about, uh, about a TV series uh, that will basically be be hopefully if if it's not framed in hamilton you probably will recognize a lot of the characters in this tv show as hamiltonians that's incredible uh where's the music in all this oh music is is a constant i've been doing music for i don't i know what this is the funny thing scott i don't even i'm not a good musician i can't go down to a local bar and jam with anybody i can write songs (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I've never been much of a musician. So I've been doing music for 47 years. I'm also dyslexic, Scott. So I have difficulty reading books. But somehow I'm writing my second book right now called Blood Memory for Penguin Random House Books. You know, and uh, oh, oh, somebody's at the door now, Scott. 
All right. Well, I'll let you go. Hold We're on, out of time gotta, anyway. Hold, yeah, you got to hold on. The dog's <laughs> okay. I'm on the radio. <laughs> oh, sorry, Scott. It's Lucy. You know, it's you okay. Know, you know, when you get me on the radio, um, anything can happen, right? Don't worry about it. We're out of time anyway. Tom, congratulations on all of this. The, uh, continue success. Continue the discovering. And uh, say hi to the family for us. And, of course, uh, beautiful scars tonight at the Playhouse Cinema. And Tom will be there. Tom Wilson has been with us. Thank you so much, Tom. Be well. Thanks, you have a great weekend. All right. Uh, like we, you need me to tell you this, uh, almost half of Canadians are doing worse than they were last year financially. That's according to a new poll from Angus Reid Institute. To talk more about all of this, Dave Krasinski, is with us, research director with Angus Reed, and on now. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, not so bad. Uh, thanks for having me. So uh, obviously, these are pretty, uh, pretty uh, concerning numbers to say the least. Have we seen anything like this before? Have we seen this sort of pessimism before? It, it certainly does stand out. At least over, we've got tracking going back uh, quarter by quarter to 2010. And I think that's why it, it seems uh, to stand out so much is because um, you know, every quarter when you ask Canadians if they're better or worse off financially than they were, generally speaking, you've got about half of people who say that they're about the same, uh, a third who say they're worse off, and then you know 13 to 17% who say they're better off. This time, we've got a pretty strong lean toward worse off with 45%. Uh, it's the highest mark that we have going back. So that's, you know, 13 years. Uh, and it's up about 11 points from this time last year. So it really does represent a bit of an aberration. And I think that uh, I think we all know the reasons why, but it's interesting to uh, track those trends and just see how the increase in gas prices, grocery prices, you know, maybe mortgage payments, rent payments, all of these things are correlating. And what's equally concerning from your research, Dave, is that uh, I think it was about a third of them don't think it's going to get any better. No, it's and that really does. It seems to concentrate uh, on those people that are already doing poorly. That's the yeah. worst part of it is that, you know, if you look at those people who say that they're having a tough time, more than half of them say that it's going to get worse, whereas people who are weathering it OK, you know, everybody, I think, across the financial spectrum um is taking a bit of a hit, uh, but some people are just more insulated and a little bit more able to, to deal with that. So you really do see low-income Canadians saying that they're having a hard time. And yeah, the uh, even throughout COVID, at least we had some more optimism. You know, people looked forward and, and thought, you know, things will get better next year, um, or at least maybe they won't get worse. They were relying on some nice government supports that have dried up and now have surprised some people uh, in terms of having to pay them back when they didn't think that they were going to have to. Um, all of those things are just kind of bouncing around right now. And it's really, it's an uncertain time for Canadians and it's a difficult time, particularly for low-income Canadians, because when the price of milk goes up, you know, it goes up the same amount for everybody, but mm -hmm. your ability to pay for it, uh, it's kind of a re regressive uh, growth in, in that price, if you will. So it hurts low-income people more. It's very bizarre because I remember when, you know, before the doors were fully open, we couldn't wait to get out. We couldn't, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. I can't wait to go to a restaurant, whatever. Uh, now it's we can't afford to go. It's, yeah, it's very bizarre. And, you know, it went very quickly from one to the other. 
Yeah. And one of the things that people cut back on when you look at, okay, you're having a difficult time. If you look at a correlation, like people that are having financial stress right now, one of the things that they start, they won't go out for dinners as much or they'll cancel mm-hmm. trips. And I mean, even if you can even get a passport to go on a trip these days, yeah. um, uh, it's, uh, it is a time where I think people were a lot more hopeful when they were, you know, locked up and, and not, and just kind of hanging out and taking it easy and reading their books and thinking, you know, we'll make up for lost time in, in 2022. And it's proving to be a little more difficult than I think a lot of people had hoped for a number of different reasons. But uh, one of the big ones is certainly the cost of uh, everything. Even if you've tried to get a hotel or an Airbnb uh, in a, in uh, another town, it's uh, pretty hard to avoid the increase in costs across the board. And, uh, you know, it, it, there's always a segment of the population who suffer more during scenarios like this who we have to focus on and and obviously take care of and give a hand up to. But this seems to have affected everybody, like everybody's talking about this. Yeah, yeah. Somebody asked me earlier today, you know, what what would my advice be if a policymaker asked me just looking at the data? And, you know, one of the things that I would say right off the bat is that, you know, supports for low income Canadians. Um, But one of the challenges that we're having now is that we've got all of this inflationary pressure and you don't necessarily want to increase public spending. Um, One of the Mm. ways to cut that back is just to spend less, not to print as much money. and to raise those interest rates and all of those things are going to hurt people uh, in the lower income spectrum. And the, the other risk that you run is people who are maybe in the middle or higher income spectrum or who are doing better off. There's been a real rush to, to enter the home ownership market and mm-hmm. prices are so high compared to where they were two years ago that you know some people are want those prices to come crashing down but for other people that would be a catastrophe so there's there's really no way that you're not going to hurt some segment of canadian society Mm. so it's just trying to look at those do those equations do those policy analyses and figure out how you can minimize the damage at this point and i think that's what the bank of canada is doing and saying they'll raise the interest rates and and that should shore things up a little bit but uh, you know, we certainly didn't see that yet as uh, inflation rose hmm. another percentage point from, from April to May. Dave Krasinski, Research Director with Angus Reid Institute, talking about where our heads are at this stage of life in Canada and around the world. Dave, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. No problem. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly know uh, that the war, the Russian invasion of, UK- of Ukraine has dragged out. Uh, where I believe we're somewhere around day 126 now. Ukraine, very vocal that they need more help. Many are questioning whether interest uh, around the world has subsided in all of this. Uh, but now new information coming out that Ukraine and Moldova have both been granted EU candidate status. Uh, says the president of the European Council. And this means that, uh, well, we'll find out what it means. Let's bring in Arl Brown, professor of international Re- uh, relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. And with us now, Arl, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. And what does EU candidate status mean? What's happened here? It is an important step towards gaining membership, but it is a long road. You have to fulfill many criteria to be able to join. 
corruption has to be addressed, the independence of the judiciary, the economy has to progress. So uh, uh, this is far from a guarantee. It is, in a sense, a promissory note. Uh, We remember that Putin did not want uh, anybody along his border joining NATO. uh, And and obviously, uh, earlier on, uh, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, has said he wasn't interested in that. What's the difference between being granted EU candidate status and wanting to join NATO? What's the difference between one and the other? Obviously, they're very different things. But as far as Putin's concerned. In reality, I don't think he's happy with either one of them. Let us not forget that he invaded Ukraine the first time in 2014 and illegally annexed Crimea. And the excuse was that uh, Ukraine, this revolution, the Maidan revolution, where they chose not to join this Russian-controlled Eurasian Economic Union, but instead they wanted to proceed with membership eventually in the EU. So the EU is not something that uh, Russia wants to see uh, expand on its borders. But for the time being, Vladimir Putin has not raised open objections, uh, not in a harsh way as he did before, because this is a long process. And he appears to be optimistic that the West will not have the stamina to continue to sustain uh, help for Ukraine, that eventually the sheer brutality and the mass uh, attacks by Russia will wear down Ukraine, will destroy the government, and that this will never come about. Uh, The process uh, of membership can take 10 years easily. Turkey has been a candidate member for 21 years, so this is not an immediate danger for Russia. But if Ukraine eventually does join NATO, if it becomes a prosperous democratic state, that would be a moral threat to the Putin regime because that would be an alternate vision for a large Slavic state of becoming successful as uh, a responsive government rather than this personalist rule where Vladimir Putin tells the Ukrainian people that I am your savior. I keep you uh, respected internationally. I grant you all the benefits that you have. That would prove to be a very deep and offensive lie. Uh, you you were saying that EU candidate status could last for a long time. This could be a very long, drawn-out process to meet all of the criteria. Does being uh, uh, does having a or being granted EU candidate status have its own privileges? Even though you're not a full-fledged member yet. Yes, it has very limited uh, privileges, as Turkey has learned. Uh, it does not mean that the EU could not do a great deal for Ukraine, because Ukraine needs economic help, needs political support, and the EU is a very wealthy entity. Russia has targeted not only the Ukrainian military, they have deliberately targeted the Ukrainian economy. They are doing everything possible to destroy the Ukrainian economy. They are blockading Ukrainian ports. Ukraine has relied on maritime trade to send out its uh, agricultural exports. Ukraine is one of the world's leading exporters of wheat uh, and of barley. And in a sense, Russia is blackmailing the world. It is creating hunger uh, in parts of the world by denying uh, this uh, this grain, they the Russians have also targeted the 
uh, grain silos in Ukraine. They have targeted the railway stations. The economic devastation in Ukraine is huge, and the EU could come up with uh, a great deal of economic help to begin to rebuild uh, in areas that are now solidly in Ukrainian control, including the capital, including the second largest city, Kharkiv. So um, even though the process is a very long one from candidates uh, status to full membership, there is on a voluntary basis that the EU could uh, do many, many things. We will have to see, especially what Germany is willing to do. Because Germany in the past had been very reluctant to do anything that conceivably could provoke the Russians. And this was the policy under Angela Merkel, who in many ways was an exemplary leader, but she seemed to have any kind of blind spot and when it came to Russia, she was very worried about provoking Russia. She uh, allowed Germany to become utterly dependent on Russia for cheap energy. Germany was not even willing to provide defensive armaments uh, to Ukraine. There has been a change now. The new chancellor has called this a Zeitenwende, which kind of translates to a change of an era, a watershed. And so this is where Germany the largest economy, the wealthiest country, uh, uh, large country in Europe, they are the ones who have to take the lead to help Ukraine economically, and that will be a big test. Generating lots of interest right now, especially in the United States. Roe versus Wade has been officially overturned in the United States by the nation's Supreme Court. We knew this was coming, although uh, a lot of people thought they'd never see this uh, day arriving, including me. Uh, Candace Johnson is with us, professor of political science, University of Guelph, with a focus on reproductive rights and gender justice, and is with us now. Candace, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am well. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks so much. So obviously we know what the reaction has been both here, there, and, and from various uh, parts of the world. Where does this leave the United States right now? I understand some states have uh, already, uh, as soon as this decision come down, legislation kicks in. Where does this leave the United States right now? Well, um, in, in, in regional terms, uh, it doesn't leave it in a in a good place um there have been a number of countries in latin america for example that have just decriminalized abortion um but it also leaves american women in a terrible spot to say the to say the least there's a lot of unknowns so it means at a most basic level that there's going to be a patchwork of states some states will um, allow abortion, abortion will be legal, and in other states it will be banned completely, and there will be some um, states where there will be uh, different restrictions, um, so it'll be a, a little bit of everything, but uh, a lot of impediments to access in about half of the states is what the expectation is at the moment. Uh, obviously, now the decision is up to the states, the individual states, as to what they want to do. Uh, is, is this set in stone? Is this it? I mean, do we have to wait for another changing of the Supreme Court level before this to 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 be reversed in any way? W what's the status of this? Is this set in stone? Pretty much. I think that's, that's what it would take. It would take a very different configuration of justices and a case to come forward in order for... Um, a constitutional protection to be 
reinstated. Um, but otherwise, this is the this is the situation. There's no constitutional protection for um, for the right to abortion in the United States. Uh, the other way forward would be for Americans in individual states to vote in at the state level mm. legislators that would um, pass progressive policies, um, progressive laws that would permit abortion. Um, so there's still a chance. There's still a chance. There's still a chance at the state level, Candace, that uh, that those people could be voted out, and and each individual state by state by state overturns this. Absolutely, and that's that's what is going to happen at at this point in about half of the half of the states. Uh, so uh, it's really going to depend on who's in power at the state level. Um, what is the fallout of this as far as the medical industry, the healthcare industry, um, insurance? Uh, we've heard some insurance companies will pay for uh, people who need help to go from different or two different places with this. Companies stepping forward to cover this cost. What about fallout and other, you know, again, is this, I don't, I'm not sure this is as cut and dry as it is. No, it's not cut and dried at all. I think that there are a lot more unknowns than knowns right now. Um, I think that the question about insurance companies and access uh, is a good one. Um, There are different states, uh, governments in power in different states that are talking about restricting the ability for people, regardless of of whether insurance will cover it, um, restricting the ability to even order um, the drugs that would be required for medical abortions uh, over the internet. So will abortion be accessible at all, um, medical abortion, even uh, even if women don't need to or don't want to pursue a surgical abortion, which would actually require going to a clinic, which is um, slightly more more difficult or sort of different in that it requires physical movement. So, yeah, a lot of complex factors related to accessing pharmaceuticals and the ability to procure them from wherever, sometimes uh, from different countries to be able to order them um, online and have them sent to to a state that uh, that might ban them completely. Many have said that uh, Canada is a much different bird than the U.S. Uh, every major political party has said they have no interest in going down this road. What about Canadians who are fearful of this? Well, I think that they have a reason to be concerned. I don't think that anything is going to happen immediately, and I don't think that we're faced with uh, the situation at the level of our high court. Um, But we do have a fairly... lively pro-life movement that's likely to be emboldened by this decision. Uh, There's definitely a large contingent within the Conservative Party of Canada that has um, pro-choice, pro-life 
sentiments. Um, there are a couple of people that are vying for the leadership of that party that um, have those sentiments as well. And while they say that they won't reopen it, um, you know, we'd have to wait and see to find out. Um, the Liberal Party is committed to a pro-choice position, but I think that uh, these rights are, are quite vulnerable. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that women have uh, a have good reasons to be concerned. All right, Candace Johnson with us, professor of political science, University of Guelph, talking about the Roe versus Wade decision officially overturned in the United States by their Supreme Court and concerns here in this country. Candace, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University, members of parliament in Canada heading home after uh, a uh, a spring session, per se, uh, off for summer holidays, doing the barbecue circuit. And let's bring in Henry to talk about all of this. Professor of political science, McMaster University, Henry Jasek with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well, yes. Henry, did you ever think we'd see the overturn of Roe versus Wade? Well, <clears throat> for the longest time, I thought it would never happen. Uh, yeah. But then, you know, some of the decisions we started to see over the last few months saying, oh, oh maybe they're going in that direction, and, and there they go. Uh, lots of people, and specifically politicians in Canada, making hay out of this. All major political parties have said several times they have no interest in going backwards mm-hmm. and going back down this uh, debate. What about us up here? Well, I think that, you know, we, we see that, you know, Trudeau came out very, very strongly saying, attacking it. A bit surprising to a certain extent, but I think he probably calculated this is going to, you know, basically shore up support for him. And also, uh, he felt, probably felt he could do it because Biden attacked the Supreme Court. That, that he, you know, so that we, you know, our prime minister would attack the American Supreme Court seems to be a bit odd, but. Uh, under those two conditions. And I would also point out that during the election campaign, uh, Ford came right out and saying, we're not going to do anything like that. So he also, I mean, so I think, you know, all the Canadian politicians know this is not something they want to open up here. Um, You were mentioning the Prime Minister commenting on this, but not commenting on uh, gas prices or reducing gas taxes in uh, any way, which President Biden is talking about also. Um, Do you find it odd that he's weighing in on an abortion issue, but he's not weighing in on what's the number one thing for most Canadians, and that's inflation and the cost of gas and groceries and all that stuff? Well, the thing is, I don't think he wants to talk about it at all. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, this is he wants to run away from it, so if he can talk about abortion. And if we look at the, the things that they are talking about that they have to do next uh, when they do come back, they're all about, I would say, broadly defined as security issues. There's nothing about money. Uh, there's not about inflation, what they're going to do. They're not about taxes. There's nothing about economics. They're just, you know, really, you know, certainly Trudeau is just silent on that. What do you think is going to happen over the summer? Uh, because I don't, I'm not sure a lot of this is going to going to go away. I mean, well, maybe we'll all get a well-deserved vacation that we've been waiting for for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but what do you think is going to happen? How is this going to simmer? Because we can certainly see, and I've really noticed this in the media as well in the last couple of weeks, Henry. The tone has really changed towards the prime minister. Oh yeah, there's no question he'll be happy to you know try to get out of the news right now. You're absolutely correct about that. Uh, and, and his tone has changed. I think what it is, I think there's two things that is probably worrying him that he doesn't want to talk about. 
is he wants to, uh, you know, basically see what's going to happen to, are we going to get a seventh wave of the virus? So there's no talk about that. We're all hoping, keeping our fingers crossed. We don't know what's going to happen, and I think he... He, he didn't want to raise that. That would spoil our summer if he said we should worry about it. But I have a feeling he's got to, got to keep his eye on that and hope for the best. And, and of course, the, the financial thing. Now, there are some economists who have said, listen, uh, we probably, by the time we hit the fall, we're going to probably start seeing a drop in this inflation and stuff. So he's just, I think he's probably hoping that's going to be true. Uh, so, uh, you know, the finance minister, of course, is going to have to deal with that. But uh, I think he's hoping that's going to be true. And essentially, he he basically, as I said, they they basically put things, you know, focused on security issues, whether it's worrying about Russians sneaking in the country who are bad, who want to do some mischief because we've been, you know, ban them uh, from from coming in, or there is uh, things, you know, things about firearms. Um, or, uh, you know, the Chinese coming in with uh, or others coming in and trying to, you know, get into our, uh, uh, you know, our phone situation, our phone uh, system, or they're worried about people crossing the border, so they're going to get border, a border. I don't know, Henry. I don't, think they're, I don't think they're worried about any of that. They took forever to ban Huawei, so I'm not really sure that's the top priority, although it may be a distraction. Let me ask you this, because we've only got a, a little bit left. Sure. Uh, Premier Ford announces his uh, new cabinet today and obviously uses the occasion to promote, once again, he talked about this in April, that the gas tax was going down again as of Canada Day, July 1st, another uh, 5.7 cents per liter. Uh, does that resonate? with the prime minister at all i don't know i don't think he's going to pay attention to that uh i don't think he wants to do that and i and again i think one of the things that he's thinking about as and we've heard this in other situations is will that be passed on to the consumer or will that be caught up in the you know the chain of producing the gas and people who are doing that in that chain are grabbing some of the money so it's hard sometimes when you reduce a tax like that it doesn't really wind up where 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 you hope it is so that's what i think he's probably worried about all right henry jasek with us professor of political science mcmaster university henry as always thanks so much for the time be well okay same to you if scott thompson isn't satisfied with an answer he'll delve into the issue until he is you're listening to hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk 900 chml Premier Ford has uh, announced his new cabinet uh, for the next session, a 30-person cabinet this time out. To talk more, let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, and he's with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, Doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Any surprises for you here today, Colin? Anything new? Uh, I mean, obviously, I guess Christine Elliott's replacement was the big question here, but any surprises for you? Well, the big one was that not only did Sylvia Jones get the uh, role of the Minister of Health, but she's also been named as the Deputy Premier. And, and, you know, Deputy Premier in Ontario largely is just an empty title. You don't really do anything. You don't really have any responsibilities. It's not as if when the Premier is, you know, stepping away out of the province or something, you all of a sudden take over and can make decisions. But it really is an acknowledgement from the Premier that you are, uh, you know, quite an important person in his cabinet. And, you know, to have Sylvia Jones not only be the Minister of Health, but the Deputy Premier signifies a great deal of trust and responsibility in her. And that, I think, was the most surprising one.
Uh, many were questioning and wondering who would replace, uh, replace Christine Elliott, obviously a pillar in the last government. Uh, feedback from or response from Sylvia Jones. Uh, can she do this? Well, a lot of the people in uh, the healthcare field certainly think they can, uh, that she can. One of the reasons she was tapped was because of her history during the pandemic. She was the one who was really leading the rollout as the solicitor general of the vaccine, uh, uh, the, the COVID-19 vaccine. Mm-hmm. And as a result, she was really in touch with a lot of the healthcare providers because that's you know who they partnered with in order to roll out the vaccines. So everyone from you know the head of the University Health network who I spoke to today to the head of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario uh, feel a certain level of trust with her because they feel like at least there's some continuity in health from the Minister of Health under Christine Elliott to now Sylvia Jones. They feel like they're, they're not starting from scratch. This is someone who knows the system and can at least start from a place of knowledge so that they can start working on the, the, the things that are plaguing our healthcare system. Obviously, uh, a little larger than before. And here in Hamilton, we're seeing representation through Neil Lumsden, who has also been made a minister. uh, and, And now, I guess, a little bit more representation for Hamilton here at Queen's Park. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it, it really was a no-brainer that uh, we would have seen uh, Mr. Lumsden come into cabinet, right? Uh, you know, this was a riding that was uh, held by Paul Miller, a longtime NDP riding, and to win it with you know somebody of of the uh, you know the stature of a former CFL player, uh, mm. not to mention like Hamilton and Toronto, right? Because that's where the rivalry always yeah. is. Uh, that's that's a huge thing, and so he'll take over a very appropriate ministry, the Ministry of Tourism and Sport. Um, and, and, you know, it really is a recognition to the people in Hamilton that not only do you have you know, one MPP with Donna Skelly and Flambrook, who's, you know, who's been in cabinet, but uh, or who's a central part of the government, but now also to have a cabinet minister from the Hamilton area. That's a pretty big deal. What do you think their biggest challenge is when there is going to be when they head back? What are we going to be talking about in the fall? So they have a lot of challenges actually ahead of them. For the Minister of Health, it is hallway medicine, the crunch uh, in hospitals with the lack of resources and nurses, and the fact that you know there are still COVID-19 patients coming in, uh, and what to do in September, as an example, if there's a resurgence of COVID-19. For the Minister of Finance, there's a lot of worries about a recession that could be on the horizon. Uh, we're seeing a contraction in the economy, and if that you know, holds true, we'll see how he has to respond in the days ahead, because that could be uh, a a tricky situation for him to navigate. Uh, For the Minister of Education, we've got um, health uh, education-related contract negotiations coming up soon, and they're Mm. all chomping at the bit to sit down with the minister and start hammering this out, and time is running out, of course. I mean, we're at the end of the school year. The question is, What's going to happen in September? The government wants no strikes, no interruptions, but unions might have another thing in mind. And even for, you know, the minister in charge of children, community and social services, Marilee Fullerton, she's got to get going with that autism file. There are 53,000 children waiting for needs-based therapy in Ontario, and she's only got about 8,000 in the pipeline in September to get that needs-based therapy. A lot of angry parents there looking at their children, wondering when they're going to get the treatment that they need a lot of files and the legislature is supposed to return in july so they'll get right back at it as soon as possible 
Oh, wow. So uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, too, and obviously, Colin, during the uh, pandemic, we saw lots of holes in the healthcare system. We saw a lot of that uh, right the way across the country and, and even uh, Premier Horgan in, in uh, B.C. leading the challenge for some sort of funding fix, some sort of funding formula adjustment as all provinces are dealing with the same thing. And we know that, that obviously healthcare is a uh, a provincial uh, jurisdiction. That being said, is there anything on the on the horizon with the feds and the provinces getting together to try to discuss and 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 come up with some sort of new system or or, or lessons we have learned from the pandemic? Well, the Council of the Federation, which is all of the uh, premiers across Canada, will be meeting sometime in July. And, you know, a perennial ask that they make of the federal government is to increase the funding when it comes to health care in, in Canada. Uh, the funding is, you know, at historic lows. And, and a lot of these provinces have been saying and making the same argument, right? It's, it, 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 you know, it is a, it is a right access to health care in this country, but it is still the provincial responsibility to really fund the bulk of this, some 75% of it. Mm. And so that's why a lot of the premiers have been asking for a larger share of the funds to be uploaded to the federal government uh, so that, you know, provinces aren't struggling because that, that really is where we're at right now. Even before they took office in 2018, we had hallway medicine. And hallway mm. medicine after the pandemic has returned and in some cases worsened. So watch in July, you'll see the premier and other premiers make that same argument again that, you know, the federal government needs to increase the Canada um, health transfers to Ontario and other provinces to really make sure that our healthcare system is first class. Colin DeMello with us, Q- uh, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more of all of this. Colin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Lots of reaction today about the uh, decision coming out of the United States. The U.S. Supreme Court has officially overturned Roe versus Wade, uh, obviously uh, changing abortion rights in the United States. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. Uh, what does this what does this do for the mood of this country that is already divided so so heavily what's what's the significance of this today what's it feel like down there uh look there there there's emotion uh that is real and it is raw and it is on both sides i've been standing outside of the u.s supreme court for the last six or so hours uh and the crowd is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds deep and it is both sides uh, of this argument that are standing with each other. There are people in this crowd who are praising this decision today as one that is a benefit uh, for the country, something that is uh, a moral victory for the United States. On the other side, there is a group right now uh, holding a rally, pushing back on the Supreme Court, which is actively taking away rights from uh, Americans. There is uh, a, a legitimate fear here tonight, Scott, of what happens today, but also the unknown of what happens tomorrow. So where is the U.S. on this? What can you and can you not do today? I understand there were certain states that as soon as this came down, they automatically switched. What, what is, the, what is the, 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 uh, the, com- the complexion of the country right now in the individual states? What does this mean today about getting these services? Yeah, so look, this, this is difficult and it is complex. Across the United States, roughly 25 states uh, are now able to 
uh, start bl uh, blocking or restricting or severely limiting the ability to access uh, an abortion. And in 13 states, the so-called trigger law states, uh, it could happen within 30 days. And actually today in Oklahoma, the state's attorney general has certified the decision that came down from the U.S. Supreme Court, meaning that effective right now, Oklahoma is now the first state to officially ban and make illegal the service of uh, of an abortion. And this is now creating that fear for what happens next across this country, but also what kind of pressure this is now going to put on states that will continue to allow abortion. So uh, is, does th is this set in stone until there's another change in the complexion of the Supreme Court? Uh, look, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to say. I mean, this is 50 years of precedent um, that has been wiped away. And this is a Supreme Court that for the first time in its history has reduced the rights for Americans rather than mm. uh, rather than expanding them. And I was talking to a, to a family earlier today, a mother and a daughter, uh, and the mother was kind of taking note of this remarkable moment in that the older generation officially had more rights than the younger generation. And it's unclear how that ever changes. It's unclear if there's going to be something that comes to a lower court and brings it to the Supreme Court. But it is a conservative supermajority. So it's hard to see how it's going to turn its back on a decision that it ultimately decided was the right way to move. So it appears the uh, only recourse here is the individual states and whether they decide to to keep the services or not. Well, there is uh, a recourse uh, by way of codifying this into law by creating legislation that would essentially reinstate the laws, uh, rather the rights that were stripped away today when Roe was overturned. But that is difficult. Democrats may have the majority, but they don't have the votes in the Senate in order to get this passed. This was tried earlier this year and Republicans blocked it. So Democrats are doing what they can to try and make this an election issue. But Scott, there are a number of Democrats uh, in the base, the progressive side, that are angry at Democratic lawmakers right now saying you had an opportunity over the last X number of years to be able to do something. So, you know, say the Democrats win majority of power and they've got control wherever they need it and they come in and they bring some sort of law. Could the Supreme Court not just overturn that? Well, I mean, it, it is possible, but a case would have to be brought to them, and somebody in the lower courts would have to say that the law that exists is is not the way that it should be, and there, there would be complexities to that. Uh, but ultimately, laws that are usually created by Congress uh, are kept in place, and that's how you get into the separation of powers. Uh, what Democrats are really going to face pressure on is should Supreme Court justice reform have taken place? Should there be more than nine justices on the court? Uh, because we saw in the Trump administration three justices seating uh, that, that ultimately worked to overturn this, even though, Scott, they said during their confirmation hearings that they believed that precedent should be the law of the land. So now there is right. kind of anger directed towards the president, towards Congress, and towards the Supreme Court. Could this give the Democrats momentum in the next election? It's possible that it could, and they're absolutely going to run with this. I mean, look, this was a party that is already facing decimation uh, with control uh, in the House, likely going to Republicans later this year. Uh, they saw that as soon as this leaked uh, draft came out earlier in the year, that this was going to be something to be able to try and motivate the base. That tied to the issues uh, surrounding gun legislation in this country. They were two top-line issues that were supported by the broad majority of the United States. Uh, so this is an opportunity for Democrats to try and get their voting base out, to try uh, and get this uh, as a way to put politicians in place that they say will protect the rights of, of people. Again, though, going against that progressive side of the party saying, sure, more Democrats could do that, but you didn't do anything to protect us right now because look at where we are.
Good point. Uh, we saw the uh, Republicans, you know, starting to splinter when it comes to gun control. There was earlier news this week. Um, do you think that there's a split within the Republicans on this issue? I think that the Republican Party uh, oftentimes goes into a little, uh, reaches a little too far uh, and realizes that they may have gone too far. Uh, and there's a New York Times uh, reporting that's out today that actually says President Trump, former President Trump, has been quietly talking to aides and, and, uh, and, and associates in that this could drive away suburban women voters that went to the Democratic Party uh, in 2020 uh, and could further drive them away from you know, going back into the Republican Party. So there is a real opportunity here that Republicans may not have read the room uh, and, and not understood that, well, abortion rights is a divisive topic. The broad majority of this country on the plus side of 50 and 60 percent did have uh, uh, did was in favor of allowing the procedure to go away. So this could could backfire for the Republicans. Has Donald Trump, the former president, commented on this since it was obviously his Supreme Court nominations that made this happen? He put a statement out earlier today saying that this is a great day for life in the United States. This has been uh, a victory, a victorious moment, not only for the former president, uh, but for the former uh, administration uh, and for those that actively worked and lobbied to get these Supreme Court justices on the high court. This is a turning point in this country. You know, how history is going to record that is something to be looked at, you know, many years down the road. But ultimately, this was a post-presidential victory for Donald Trump, who ran on a campaign of trying to make abortion across this country illegal. And here we are now, more than two years after he left office. That's now a reality. Now that this has uh, officially happened, Reggie, does this continue to be a story or does this die down or is this just going to pick up momentum, do you think? Well, I mean, look, we're only a couple of hours into this new reality across the United States and the crowds continue to grow here in Washington. But this is going to be something now to watch state by state as these trigger law states start to certify this ruling. We're going to see more and more protests start to erupt, not only outside of state Supreme Courts, but out of state legislatures as well. But we also have to watch the states that are actively working to ensure that women can access abortions, even if they're from out of state. There's a reality here, Scott, that in some states like Missouri, they could make it a crime to plan a ride into Illinois to get an abortion uh, and therefore start charging people criminally for taking part in that. This is a story that is only going to escalate over the coming weeks and months and years as this country finds itself now in a position of moving backwards. Wow. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching tonight, Global News, for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Joining us now, Tim Powers. Tim, how are you? I hope you're doing fine. Well, I'm pretty intimidated hearing that you will not rest until you find answers, Scott. My God, you're hard ass, my friend. My goodness. Well, you, you, you do what you got to do here. Uh, all right, I, I, you know what? I love having you on because we can talk about just about everything. And usually what we just, you know, have told you we're going to talk about, we never even get to. And that might be the case today. Uh, but I, right. I, I can't. Throw it I, at me, buddy. I, I can't get started without asking about Roe versus Wade. The Supreme Court overturned this, this decision. Uh, obviously, uh, a step backwards for the United States after 50 years. Uh, political parties here have said nobody wants to touch this. It ain't going to happen here. Uh, we've moved on from this years ago. Uh, what are your thoughts on what we're seeing? And is is you, are you worried about up here, or is this just the perfect distraction for the prime minister? 
it's a helpful distraction for the prime minister, but it's frightening, right? If America is one of the shining lights of democracy uh, that they like mm-hmm. to tell us they are in on the globe, for this to happen, a retrenchment, a stepping back, a loss of rights, it's 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 frightening. What does it mean elsewhere? Will 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 other um, people who have uh, views that are not aligned with modern time and society in different societies look to move them forward. I mean, we saw what happened historically with, you know, ideas and revolutions and how they spawn. They don't just stay in one place. And certainly in this day and age, I don't want to be hysterical here, Scott, but we should all be concerned about this. Um, what about fallout? I mean, and, and, you know, even the people that are involved in, in pushing this forward, are, 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 are we aware of the fallout here? Because it's pretty hard to go backwards, especially we've seen that with a global pandemic. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, where do you think, what's the fallout going to be in, in even a year from now, five years from now? I think there may be fallout in terms of political leadership change, right? Um, because you have, it's not all older white men on the Supreme Court, to be clear, who made this decision, or older white men leading the, the Republican Party in the U.S. who appointed, um, you know, Donald Trump appointed some of these last uh, Supreme Court judges. I, I, I hope there's some political change. I hope that brings, you know, more younger, relatively speaking, people into the fore. I hope advocacy groups uh, continue to push hard for this fight. And I hope state governors do responsible things in their respective states, because ultimately um, it will be up to states to enforce these laws hmm. or not. How bizarre it, How bizarre is it that we're having, that this is all happening? And I guess we knew it was going to happen. But, uh, you know, on the week that we're, you know, they're discussing uh, both parties coming together and getting some sort of gun control strategy. It, you know, it seems, you know, you get one, you lose the other. It's just, it's, I guess it's the sign of the dysfunctional times in which we live, Scott. It's easier to divide and, and find polarizing issues. Mm. Finding common ground seems to be so much harder, and this is one where we shouldn't be stepping backwards. Uh, but unfortunately, we are. Uh, and hopefully that, you know, hopefully uh, leadership change in the United States. They have some midterm elections coming up this fall. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll bring a, a more responsible, moderate view that doesn't appear to be the case but one can be hopeful uh the democrats not doing too well uh right now do you think this could change the tide for them could this work in their favor maybe but i think their biggest challenge seems to be biden right um Hmm. i I think people are looking at him unfortunately uh, maybe it's an asia's lens as being uh, having had his best years behind him as the guy who beat Trump, but if the as I think Biden needs to signal, according to some of the commentary that I've read, that you know he's not going to he'll finish this term, and then there'll be hope elsewhere. So Biden could be pulling the party down, but this may help them. This may help them. Yes, you can't say it won't. All right, going to change the topic a little bit. Uh, the uh, premier uh, selecting his cabinet today and also uh, took the opportunity to reannounce that uh, gas taxes will be going down, uh, I think, 5.7 cents per liter July 1st. This was an announcement from back in April. Uh, is this resonating with the prime minister? Uh, do you think this has any sort of uh, resonation in Ottawa at all? Uh, well, I think they've been hammered, right, over the last two weeks for being tone deaf on inflation. Yeah, I get their argument that they're not sure if gas taxes will work, but frankly, they need to show that they're hearing people. Uh, Doug Ford is 
doing that with this particular policy. Um, Christian Friedland earlier, was it last week when she gave her economic statement, said, you know, all things remain on the table. I think if Ford gets some credit for this and the oil companies don't uh, push up prices, uh, maybe the, the the feds think about doing it uh, co- across the course of the summer. But, I mean, they got messes at passport offices, at airport lines. I mean, I'm reminded I got in trouble for saying this to a friend of mine who works at Air Canada today. It's like you're sitting on the plane and you're told, oh, we're sorry for the delay. Thank you for your patience. Nobody believes you when you say that. And nobody believes you when yeah. you hear the prime minister and Krishia Friedland say they got everything uh, under control. Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thanks so much for your time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too, buddy. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. I just hope they don't ban tongue piercings. But I'm sure if someone says it's morally wrong to tongues, I'm sure SC will end that too. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.